Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Tim Berry. Tim is the co-founder and CEO of VillageMD, which provides thousands of primary care physicians with technology, staffing, and other support to help them provide better patient care. The company has also developed primary care clinics of its own and announced over the summer that Walgreens is investing over a billion dollars to build hundreds of Village MD clinics next to its pharmacies over the next five years. I'm really looking forward to asking Tim about his vision for transforming primary care and what the Walgreens partnership signals about how healthcare delivery in the U.S. is changing. Tim, thanks so much for being with us today. Jeff, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So you have a really impressive background across all types of healthcare, including running a, a Medicare Advantage program. I'd love to hear a bit more about your own background and your personal words and how you got into the healthcare space. Yeah, so by way of background, technology entrepreneur, which is always funny to our tech team. But I have uh, started a few different technology companies earlier in my career. I'm actually incredibly fortunate to, to be working in healthcare today in that I had a college roommate, frankly, who was starting his own consulting practice. And he convinced me after I had sold one of the technology companies to, to go do some work at Blue Shield of California. And to be perfectly honest with you, Shiv, I was not all that excited about it at first. I thought, you know, here I am, this kind of tech guy, or I thought of myself as a tech guy. And here was this sort of nonprofit health insurance company. It didn't sound all that, that sexy or fun. And so my college roommate, I think, knew better. And he, he convinced me to come give it a shot. And, and I fell in love with the industry. I've always been a bit of a, a math nerd by, by background. I've, I think caring about people and making a difference in the community matters. And so when I got into the healthcare space, I realized that this is really a, an industry, right? Some would say a business that is really all about trying to change the trajectory and lives of others. And so it became a, a natural fit. That's fantastic. And so can you talk to us a bit about some of the uh, seminal or milestone events in your life and, and kind of what, what types of things you ran before founding Village MD? And then obviously, we'd love to hear that founding story. Yeah, so it's interesting because all of the, 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 com the technology companies that I was involved in were really tied to education and human development. And I'll never forget, this is a funny story. I was, it was sort of mid-1990s, and I was living in Chicago and, and walking on Michigan Avenue. I was out shopping with some friends, and we walked into the Nike store, and there was a poster of Lisa Leslie, who's a, a women's professional basketball player at the time. And the, the sign said, you just can't fake love, man. And I thought that was so cool. It was so impressionable for, for me in that the things that I've done professionally, I've always felt a need to be very passionate about it. And uh, I worked in consulting very early in my career and, and worked for a blanking and stamping plant, which was a third tier supplier to an automotive company. And, you know, that body of work was intellectually interesting for about a day. But for me, it was really about what, what are the things that really excite me and, and the idea of seeing I'm from a small town in Northeast Wisconsin, and the idea of seeing people improve and their lives improve is something that always just really motivated me. And so companies that I, I started prior to getting to healthcare were, were all really focused on that. My healthcare journey was, was somewhat interesting in that when I came into Blue Shield, I came in at a time that was in the early 2000s. And one of the, the, the big events that happened in my time at Blue Shield of California is that Medicare Modernization Act was signed into law in December of 2003. 
And it was a hotly contested piece of legislation, but it gave birth to what we now call the Medicare Advantage industry. Back then, it was called Medicare Plus Choice, and it was run very differently prior to that. And so I was falling in love with the healthcare industry, and so I read the legislation kind of cover to cover. And one of the things that really fascinated me was that in the course of this legislation, it introduced the idea of acuity adjustment, which to most people, what is that? And it was a way of the government paying insurance companies based upon the acuity of the people they were caring for. So if you think about all other insurance in any other property casualty, life insurance, car insurance, there's really not this idea of acuity adjustment where you get paid more for someone who's of higher risk, unless they get to individually underwrite as an insurance company. But to have an insurance program that did that, to me, was kind of a sentinel event that said, we're going to start to move down a pathway in the healthcare system where the companies that take risk, health insurers, are going to have to work much differently with the healthcare providers than what they have historically. Because the people who are highest risk are people who have chronic disease. They have COPD, they have CHF, they have these heart conditions. And, and we have to do a better job of providing care to them such that they don't need to go to the emergency room in the hospital, et cetera, as often as they do. And so to me, that was a sentinel event that kind of helped send me down a pathway to also realize that you know either health insurers have to work very differently with providers or health insurers have to start becoming providers like in California Kaiser's always been there but more and more around the country we see health insurance companies now acting as providers and the other phenomena is provider organizations who are willing to take risk and to, to be fully accountable for all of the total quality outcomes and the medical spend that their patients have. And frankly, my, my bet is I read this in thought and I went out and talked to different physician groups at the time when I was still in California, across California, my bet was on the doctors. Because at the end of the day, the physicians are the people that have built the greatest amount of trust with their patients. And if we're gonna change outcomes in this country, it has to come from a really trusted source and it has to come from people who are the ones day in, day out, you know, caring for patients. And, and so my bet was on the providers. So long-winded context to the, some of the Sentinel events, but there's, you know, some things from a legislative front, some things in talking to doctors and realizing what they were missing as it related to the way that they could best deliver healthcare, all kind of led me down a path to say, I wanted to pursue my career and focus my, the energy of my career in organizing primary care doctors and helping them deliver the best care they possibly can. That's fantastic. We've had a lot of pretty amazing guests on the on the podcast, including just recently we had Dr. Sachin Jain, who I'm sure you know from from Caremore, now Scan. And then in a few weeks we'll have Dr. Vivian Lee, who runs Verily at Google, but also just wrote a book called The Long Fix, which I've been reading in preparation for the interview. And I feel like your explanation there perfectly encapsulated some of the, the things that I read in that book just there. So You've made a bet on the primary care docs, given that osmosis reaches millions of current and future physicians. I'm sure our audience likes to hear that. Can you talk about, you know, how you actually materialized that bet and you, you started Village MD, what the trajectory has been, and then let's move that into the discussion around your major Walgreens contract and where you see it going. Yeah, absolutely, Shiv. So, so I think what one thing, just one other contextual item is that if you look at the U.S. healthcare system. We spend $4 trillion per year on healthcare, right? And that number is going up and to the right 
at a pretty significant pace, right? And and yet we have quality of care outcomes that's frankly a little bit better on a population basis than than many third world countries. So we have this sort of interesting perspective where we have the cost of healthcare continuing to skyrocket. And yet, as much as we're spending on healthcare, the quality of outcomes don't improve. Lots of people have heard that, no, no big statement there. The thing that I find most fascinating, though, is that when you peel back the layers of the onion a little bit, you're going to find that less than 20% of the population is accountable for 85% of that $4 trillion. And that happens to be people who have chronic disease, right? And so when you, and you think about the, the clinical professionals in this world who are frankly best trained to take care of those who have multiple chronic conditions, it's the primary care doc. And so, you know, unfortunately what, what's happened in our medical system, both from a medical education standpoint, as well as where most doctors go to practice, they're not focused on how are we delivering the best outcome to chronic patients, right? People aren't saying, how do we invest as much as we possibly can into primary care so that the outcomes that these patients have are best, right? So that in the ideal scenario in the healthcare space, we would have an intense focus and energy on those who currently have chronic disease. And then we would work really hard to prevent the continued exacerbation of chronic disease with others, right? And so if you just sort of think about that from a macroeconomic standpoint, it all leads you to primary care has to be the answer, but primary care can't be the answer in the way in which the training currently works today, as well as where most of the primary care doctors work, which is unfortunately in hospital systems. And it's also in a spot where the primary care doctors are resource constrained. They don't have access to the technology. They don't have a longitudinal view to know what's going on with their patients. They don't have the ability to send someone to the home. They don't have the ability to have someone coordinating care across different specialties. And so we said, let's build a primary care system that moves beyond the traditional clinic space into one that's thinking holistically about this 10-foot bubble that wraps around the doctor and the patient. If we acknowledge the fact that people who have chronic disease are living with it 24-7, as opposed to the 15 minutes every 90 days they go in and see the primary care doctor, we would create a different kind of healthcare system. We'd have more resources. We'd have nurses. We'd have social workers to deal with behavioral health conditions. We'd have pharmacists who are integrating the chemical aspects of, of care improvement tied to the physical aspects that the doctors bring into bear. And so you, there's all these things that we would do differently. And so that that's the journey we've been on. It's been it's seven and a half years. We, we started with one physician group in Houston, Texas. It was 14 doctors that we started with. We're just about 3,000 doctors today. And we're on, as you referenced earlier, we're on a pretty aggressive path to continue to scale this, this model into so many other markets. You can't scale without great technology. And so thankfully, that's a huge part of what we do. You can't scale and give doctors the, this better care model to practice in unless you have data and technology and resources that you can bring to bear. But the thing that I'm most encouraged by is that at the end of the day, primary care physicians they want to do the best thing they can for their patients. They went into this specific family practice, geriatric, internal medicine, pediatric specialties, because they want the best outcomes for the people that they care for. And thankfully, we're able to show quantifiably that we can do that. 
That's incredible. So, I mean, the level of scale over seven and a half years is pretty, pretty amazing. And so what are some of the outcome metrics that you can share, you know, as you've scaled and, and specific examples of support? Is it everything ranging from electronic health record implementation to, you know, remote patient monitoring? We'd love to hear some of those specifics of your model that make you different than, than some other primary care models that are out there. Yeah. So I could go on for, for hours about that, but, but I'll try to summarize a few different ways, right? So as a primary care provider, part of the beauty of our model and uniqueness of our model is that we care for all patient populations. And so it's Medicare, it's commercial, those who get their you know, insurance largely through their employer, as well as Medicaid. And so you, you have these different populations or payers that you're contracting with. With the, the Medicare Advantage insurers like Humana and United and the Blues, et cetera, what you'll find is that there's a star rating that's used in Medicare Advantage, and then we're four and a half to five stars across the plans that we work with. That's the highest level of quality you can achieve. We contract directly with, with CMS, the federal government, in a model called the next-gen ACO model, where we're fully at risk for Medicare fee-for-service patients, and our quality scores are 99%, right? So the top decile of performance and, and quality. In the commercial carriers that we contract with, you'll find the exact same thing where we're consistently being given data by the payers that say you are top decile. So across the board, like quantifiably, we can show the quality of care is improved. We have net promoter scores in our clinics that are in the 90s. And so the patients are voting and saying, we like this experience because it's a primary care model. It's not just reactive, but it's proactive, it's high touch, it's co coordinated and continuous. And then the last thing is the ability to demonstrate a reduction in the total cost of healthcare. And that if you look at our performance across those different populations, again, you're going to find that we're saving a couple thousand dollars per Medicare beneficiary and Medicare Advantage. We're saving almost thousand dollars per Medicare beneficiary and Medicare fee-for-service. We're saving sort of 400 to $600 for the commercial population. Those are very real tangible savings that are measured in the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, all through a model that patients are saying they love and the quality of care is improving. So at the end of the day, when people talk about results, those are the things that we are most excited about. We, we make that happen because we, as I said, we move the primary care practice and model from just reacting to whoever happens to show up that day into a model where we're proactively scheduling the patients who need to be there based upon what the data and technology are telling us in terms of who's most at risk of various kinds of you know, bad events. And then from there, we're, we're available to patients 24-7. The way we do that is through telehealth. The way we do that is through remote patient monitoring. The way we do that is by seeing patients in the home. We see patients in the hospital. We see them in the skilled nursing facility. And so we're embedding ourselves into the lives of the patient and those who really need the additional touch points tied to the patient care. So I, I could go chapter and verse, you know, Shiv and bore you to tears on this, but, but it's really about thinking about the outcome in mind and knowing what's possible and driving better results and then investing resources to actually help make it happen. Not boring at all. I mean, that's wonderful to hear the, the quality scores for our audience's context. I think, you know, most people have experience with Apple products. Those are in the 60s or 70s as an NPS and to have a 90 plus for something that inherently people don't want to go to their doctors, right? Because every time they go, it's maybe they'll get a test that they don't want or things like that. So that's that's pretty incredible results. We've talked about COVID 
a lot on this podcast. This is the reason we even started the podcast to raise line and increase healthcare capacity and strengthen the healthcare system during COVID and beyond. Would love to hear how, you know, you, you've been working on WillageMD for six and a half years before COVID hit. COVID hit in March in a big way here in the U.S., how has it affected VillageMD's business positively and negatively? And what are some of the lasting changes you think COVID will have on not only VillageMD, but the healthcare system as a whole? When I think about the threat of COVID, frankly, coming to the, the U.S. shores, I'm incredibly grateful to our chief medical officer, Dr. Clive Fields, who during the span of one of our executive meetings said, hey, let's let's stop the presses. We need to sort of spend several hours planning and getting prepared for the thought or threat of this pandemic, you know, coming to the U.S. and what's going to happen when it gets into the communities where we have clinics. And so to his credit and the credit of the rest of the leadership team, I think we got out in front of it a lot earlier than many others. And, and part of it was a strategy that said that we, as, as a primary care provider in the community, we feel we have an obligation to keep our doors open, right? Just because COVID's hit, it doesn't mean COPD magically goes away, right? That our patients still need care, they still need us, and we've got to make sure that we're creating a level of accessibility for them so that they can be seen and be seen appropriately in the way that drives the best outcome for them, right? And so, you know, so from that standpoint, we, we got out in front of it and we, we were able to keep the vast majority of our clinics open during a time where many others were just sort of shutting their doors to say, okay, let's just move to, to a pure telehealth model. And, and while that's all well and good, and you, as an industry, I'm quite proud of how people responded during this event, but there's a reality that still many patients need to be seen physically, right? So, so we, like many others, we did see a, a significant reduction in the number of patients who came to see us. Our reduction was about 50% less than what most others did. And that's because, frankly, I think we had the benefit of six weeks of planning. In the February timeframe, we were planning for this eventual event that sort of manifested itself in the March, mid-March timeframe, right? So, so we had this, this ability to kind of get in front of it. We did see a reduction. That was negative to us. We did see, frankly, as you can imagine, a number of, of hospitals as things got a little more comfortable where more hospitals were admitting folks and maybe not appropriately, but they were admitting people to the hospital. They were also suggesting there were COVID symptoms, even though there weren't COVID tests being done. And so there was some, some negative impacts associated with that, both for the patients as well as for us as, a, as an organization. The, the really positive things, though, I would tell you is that the level of engagement that we have with patients via telehealth has significantly improved and not necessarily in the way that I think many have described it in the, in the past. A lot of folks are, are thinking about telehealth just from the standpoint of how do I create an access point where someone doesn't have to come into the clinic, but they can be seen. That's an obvious way that use case that everyone can, can apply. And frankly, doesn't, I mean, it requires a little bit of work, but doesn't require that much for that to happen. The more important thing we thought was, was the way that we care for our chronic patients. And so for us, it's allowed us to increase the number of touch points that we have with our chronic patients and see them on a more frequent basis. So that if you're looking to titrate medication, which is a common thing for chronic patients, we're able to do that leveraging telehealth in ways that maybe we hadn't historically. So, so we, we, we do think, I'm sure many people say telehealth will be a key part of the U.S. healthcare system on a go-forward basis. I agree. 
I, I'd argue COVID is just a little bit of an accelerant toward that versus a wholesale shift toward it. It's, it was naturally occurring anyway. And so a bit of an accelerant. I, I think that you know, remote patient monitoring is another way in terms of the ability for COPD, CHF patients, as an example, to kind of correspond with you as the provider on a regular basis. We're seeing that happen as well. But again, that was sort of, it was bound to happen anyway. So maybe it accelerated it by a year or so. But, you know, in a healthcare industry that is notorious for taking 20 or 30 years to adopt innovation and change, I think that we're seeing that It'll accelerate some of this by a little bit. I do think a potential negative, just to be blunt with you, Shiv, is that you know some of the telehealth adoption today, as an American public, we're, we're not always the most discerning around knowing what is good healthcare and what's not. And there have been a lot of forces that have tried to prevent quality data from being brought to bear into the the American public, right? There's contracts between payers and hospital systems that don't even allow for some of that quality data to be shared broadly with the public. I love what's happening, frankly, with the current CMS orientation towards promoting a level of transparency. It's something that we need as an American public, and I think we need it, especially in the context of more advanced technology being brought to bear, right? So that if option A for you as a sick individual is, do I just see someone who can see me today, even though they know nothing about me and my illness, or I can see someone who actually knows something about me and my history and more about what's going on with me as a person? I think everyone would agree they'd rather have the latter versus the former scenario. We've got to find ways that this advanced technology that's being rolled out doesn't further fragment our healthcare system, but finds a way to weave it thoughtfully to drive a better outcome for patients. And we, and everyone, frankly, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of this. As healthcare providers, we should all be measured on the outcomes that we provide. People shouldn't stand back and, and hide from outcomes. They should be proudly displayed. And if you're not doing great, then you better turn it around, right? Totally. Couldn't agree more. And the fragmentation is something that is a very interesting point you brought up because on some end, it's really great. Like we had Eric Topol on this podcast and, you know, he wrote the book, Your Patient Will See You Now, which I'm sure you've seen or, or read. And it's about the consumerization of healthcare, which we're seeing massive news announcements this year, especially that were planned before COVID, but, but more of them are coming out because of COVID, ranging from Walmart, you know, really scaling out their health clinics and making partnerships, trying to make a $40 adult primary care appointment versus the national average of $106. And so I know you guys made a major announcement with Walgreens, and we've had the opportunity at Osmosis to get to meet a number of those folks like Giovanni, Matt, and Greg. And actually, seven years ago, I was at TedMed and did something called the Smartphone Physical, which was a harbinger for a lot of remote patient monitoring, that, and I was very popular. And I met a gentleman there at Walgreens named Igor, who I'm sure you know, too. And I've been very impressed with how innovative they seem to be as an org. So when I saw that partnership with the Village MD, I wasn't surprised, but... If you could give us some context on, on what you're hoping to achieve in the coming years with Walgreens and maybe other any other partnerships that you have that you're willing to share. Thank you for asking about that. I will say that the Walgreens team has been so far uh, just an absolute joy to work with. And part of what excites us about the nature of the relationship, frankly, it goes back to one of my opening comments, Shiv, which is that if we're going to change what happens in the U.S. healthcare system, we have to do a better job of taking care of people who have chronic disease. 
as I'll continue to argue till probably the day I die, that the primary care doctor is most important in terms of driving to a better outcome for patients who have chronic disease. The next most important is the pharmacist, right? And so medication adherence, medication education, these are all just in some ways we say them as if they're simple. And yet, you know, to know and understand these patients is to know how unbelievably complex that that formula is in the context of the U.S. healthcare system, both from a reimbursement standpoint, a cost standpoint, an access standpoint, how it makes you feel, contraindications of medications. And so the, the, the reality is bringing the primary care doctor and the pharmacist into a, you know, a common location physically, right? So through these clinics, but also doing it in a way that's done digitally so that in the context of our care model, I talked about how we use telehealth for patients that have chronic disease. They need their pharmacist engaged, just period in a sentence. I don't think any, any one of the listeners would disagree. And, I'm, and I know that the thousands of doctors that we work with and many others would also agree. And so, so why, why don't we have that in the U.S. healthcare system today, right? Why, why is that missing? And the reality is it shouldn't be. And so what we're trying to do through the context of this partnership is make it happen and make it happen in a really easy, convenient, accessible location. And these are not your kind of typical minute clinic, walk-in clinics where it's, you got to walk past the greeting card aisle and, you know, in between the contact solution and the toothpaste is a, a doctor or nurse practitioner in a 200 square foot room. These are, you know, 3,000 square feet, nine exam rooms, two overflow telehealth rooms. And so it's a really incredible physical experience, but there's also a digital component to the nature of our partnership that I think both parties are just really excited about. That's incredible. Congratulations again on that scale. It'd be great to see, uh, you know, given how many people live near Walgreens, you know, how you all scale that. One thing I would say, Shiv, just on, on that front, by the way, and, and that is that the doctors that are working in these clinics, the feedback that we're getting is just very strong. It was something that as we rolled this innovation out, I think one of the questions that lots of people had was, is this just another doc in the box, you know, walking clinic that doesn't feel very good? And and there, there's a level of privacy, there's a level of professionalism, there's a level of privilege associated, both from a patient standpoint, as well as from a physician standpoint, that makes it a really nice experience. And based upon the net promoter scores I talked about, people are actually you know, quite thrilled about being able to have their doctor you know, in their community. And, and the docs are quite thrilled about having these, you know, frankly, they're, they're, they're quite nice. These are very nice clinics for them to practice in that's also convenient for them. And, and their patients seem to be happier because they didn't have to park in a garage and walk 600 yards to, to see them. So it's ending up being a very nice experience for both docs and patients. That's great. I mean, we all know about the statistics around burnout among our clinicians and how that may even be exacerbated because of COVID. So it's great to hear that, that their net promoter scores of the, of the providers are, are increasing too. One of the last questions I had was just basically, given that we have so many healthcare professionals, current and future, in our audience at Osmosis. What advice would you give to somebody right now considering a career in healthcare? I thought about this question a lot, right? And there's two things that I would just strongly, they're recommendations and they're frankly, please. First is dive into the data. There's so much data that is out there and available and at every, anyone who works in healthcare, the data is at your fingertips. And just bring a level of intellectual curiosity and hunger around the data and, you know, for the, the, the docs who are out there, demand the data and get the data and, and really understand what's happening with your, your patients and patient populations. 
The second thing I'd say is this is sort of tied to the first one and that the, the, the fee-for-service healthcare system that we're living in is the wrong system. It is 100% the wrong system. No one in their, their right mind will argue and say it's a good system. Spend two and a half times that of other industrialized nations on healthcare, but yet we have horrible and worse, worse outcomes, right? It's great healthcare if you can really afford it, but for the vast majority of Americans, we're failing as a healthcare system. And so I think everyone who can rush into and demand a change in their organizations so that we're not proliferating a fee-for-service healthcare system that rewards people when they get more hospitalizations, that's the wrong way to be thinking about our healthcare system. And so if you're inside of an organization that's focused on fee-for-service, I would demand change. If you're not seeing change, find organizations who are on the right side of change because we're doing the right thing for patients. We're doing the right thing for the healthcare system. Personally, I, I think this is, a, this is an unbelievable opportunity for anyone who's 22 or someone who's 68 for us to spend the rest of our careers, for those of us who work in healthcare, really pushing and promoting a better healthcare system and one that's focused on value. I use the word risk a fair amount, but risk and value are interchangeable because all of the risk models and contracting today are tied to quality of care. And so data and value, I think, are the places where I would encourage everyone to, frankly, rush to. That's fantastic feedback and really appreciate you being able to share that. I really encourage our audience to, to look at VillageMD as an innovative model because many of our audience will be going into primary care. We've had several you know, of the uh, leaders behind the DO associations and MD associations, and they all speak to the need of primary care. And what you're doing is certainly innovative and hopefully will be a model for all of them to look into. Anyone who's thinking about primary care, we would love to talk with them. And that's just the short reality of the world. We, this is a growing movement in the healthcare system. And, and like I, I view my job, frankly, Shiv, as the CEO of the company, as a non-clinician, is to remove every barrier I can to allow the docs to be the ones who drive this system for the kind of results that we're talking about. That's fantastic. So with that, Tim, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Yeah, really appreciate it. And, and Shiv, again, congratulations on just an incredible amount of success through osmosis. Really appreciate that. And with that, I'm Shiv Ivani. Thanks to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.